0: Okay. Thank you. <laughs> she just reminded me because i always forget don't forget the texting so uh we're hoping to uh, at the end of this message have time for questions uh and um so if uh, as i'm going through this message you have some questions that occur to you text those into this number and uh 321-3030 that's 321-3030 supply is limited call now so um, Text that in, and uh, uh, we'll try to get to a few of those at the end of this message. I'm uh, Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it is good to see all of you here on this lovely October Sunday, gathering together uh, to worship together and to study His Word. Um, we're starting this series called The Blessed Revolution, as Vanessa said. Blessed Revolution, Viva la Revolution. And uh, it comes from, we'll be looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, first 16 verses of uh, Matthew 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the. And they're called the Beatitudes because uh, it comes from the Latin beatus, which means blessed. And uh, the kingdom is a revolution, as you know, if you've been around here for any length of time. The revolution that will ultimately transform the world. Uh, the one revolution uh, that is worth hoping in. Everything else is not worth hoping in. Um, And if you're in that revolution, you are going to be blessed. Blessed in the ways that Jesus says here in the Beatitudes. Uh, But we're going to see in this series that that, um, the blessings of the revolution don't look anything like what the world considers blessed. In fact, the blessings of the revolution uh, look the opposite of what the world calls blessed, but that's exactly why they are revolutionary. And if we manifest the Beatitudes, the qualities of the Beatitudes... Uh, Jesus says we will be salt and light to the world. And so today I want to set up this series that we're going to be going through the next six weeks uh, by talking about what it means to be salt and light in the world. What does that mean? And so i want to entitle this message, The Salt and Light Revolution. I uh, will tell you uh, as um, we get ready to get into this message, that as I was putting this together this week, I came under some serious conviction, Uh, and I don't like that, (laughs) do you? Um, And there's a temptation that I have to fight to uh, not water down the message so that it's easier for me to preach, Um, but that's the one thing I can't do. Uh, If I were to limit my preaching to uh, kind of my level of spirituality, then that means We could never have the word outrun where I'm at, and that wouldn't be a good thing. The word has to uh, outrun us and convict us and bring us up to, uh, move us forward to where God wants us to be. So um, I'm going to be sharing this, what God put on my heart, and I'm just saying this to tell you that uh, some of us will be convicted. We ought to be convicted. I want us to be convicted. Uh, I've said many times up here that my job in preaching is to invite you in on my misery, I don't want to be miserable alone, so um, welcome to the Miserable Club. But we need to be open to this, and I encourage you to have open hearts as this is going forward. That's the only way that God can change us, is if we are genuinely open in our hearts to receive um, His Word and to let the Holy Spirit do His job. Jesus says His job is to convict us. It's, It's possible for us to suppress that and to... And to excuse and to argue our way around it, just stay open and let him do his convicting work. Because um, that's really where, even though it, it's not pleasant, but if we follow that through and obey and, and respond to it, um, well, that's where the joy is. And that's, that's where the peace is. And that's where the, the, all the blessings of the, of the kingdom come only when we say yes and respond to what God's doing in our life. So I'm going to, this morning, read the entire section here, verses 1 through 16. Um, And then, uh, in the weeks to come, we'll be taking it apart verse by verse, looking at each one of these blessings. But here I want us to see the big picture. Uh, It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. So just notice here at the beginning that He's teaching his disciples here, not the crowd. He saw the crowd, and then he separated himself from the crowd to go up on the mountain and then to give a teaching specifically to his disciples. And we'll see later on that's an important point to uh, notice. And then to his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. I told you that the blessings of the kingdom this blessed revolution are not like any Blessings out in the world. The world would never consider this a blessing to be persecuted. Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad when that happens, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Jesus gives the punchline. If, you do, if all those things are true about you, these blessings are yours, then you will be this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Pray with me here. As I get my water. Can you me my water? I appreciate that. Father, we just thank you for this time here this morning. For giving us the opportunity to come together and worship and uh, to listen and study your word for your spirit who is here. And Lord, I, I just pray that uh, God Holy Spirit be in all of our hearts here in this auditorium and, and it, for those who are listening through podcasts and television. Would you soften our hearts to make them receptive to your convicting spirit, to your, uh, the work of, of, of the spirit in our life. God, help us to receive what you have for us. And God, collapse our, our, our fallen tendency to be defensive and to have rationalizations and excuses and, 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 and such things. God, just soften our heart to make it receptive to your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you use this message to for those who maybe are in the crowd, that you would bring them out of the crowd and make them committed disciples. And for those of us who are committed disciples, God, I pray you'd use this word to deepen our commitment And to fan the flame of our passion, that we could be the salt and the light that you have called us to be, and empowered us to be. Be glorified. Be glorified. In this time, and in our lives, in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. So here's the background to this uh, teaching. Jesus has just launched his ministry in, in the chapter before this. Um, And his fame spread quickly. Word got out. And so the crowds came from all around. They heard about this possible Messiah, this miracle worker, this teacher. And they wanted to check this out. So Jesus saw the crowds, and so he decided it was time to have his first huddle with his disciples, those who who had made a decision, a commitment to following him. They were the ones who had subjected themselves to his discipline. That's what a disciple is, one who's disciplined by another. And um, so uh, Jesus separates himself from the crowd and goes up the mountain and his disciples follow him. And that's when he gives his first teaching um, on uh, discipleship on the the Beatitudes here. Most scholars agree that this mountain that he retreated to was one of the hills of Tabga, which is near Capernaum uh, by the Sea of Galilee. I was there about 13 years ago. Oh, here we go. Go ahead, put that up there. Uh, they were reminding you that you can text in the questions. Yeah, I was there about 13 years ago. I went to Israel, and uh, uh, it was an incredible experience just standing. I don't know if I was at the exact place where Jesus was, but uh, we're quite sure that it was on these hills that uh, Jesus gave this teaching. And uh, as I was there, you could just imagine uh, Jesus being there, and, and I could just visualize Jesus you know, a ways up the mountain giving this teaching to his disciples, and, and the, the crowds are back down there in the plain. Um, it, was, it was quite an experience. But so he's, Jesus here is talking to his disciples, not the crowd. And that's important because some people take the Beatitudes to be um, sort of a universal teaching about a, a universal ethics, how all human beings should behave. And actually, they're not that at all. Uh, these are He's spelling out the qualities of a disciple. Uh, this isn't how Jesus thinks people in the, in the world are going to act. Uh, no, these are the qualities of a, of a disciple. And it's important to note that they're not ethics at all. These are not rules that Jesus are, is giving. These aren't laws or commands. These are descriptors. They, are, are, they, they describe what a disciple looks like. As, as we follow Jesus, this is the kind of thing that was going to characterize us. Uh, and Jesus isn't say, saying try to be poor in spirit try to mourn try to be persecuted he's not saying that he's simply saying if you follow me you are going to be poor in spirit uh, you are going to mourn but you're blessed in doing that and the reason you're blessed in doing that is because you're going it's evidence that you're going down the right road the beatitudes are like road signs and they indicate that we're going down the right road the road that leads to eternal life uh, and so if you find as we go through these beatitudes that they don't characterize your life. The solution isn't to try to have them. Like, oh, i got to try to mourn. I have to try to be poor in spirit. No, the solution, rather, is just to get on the right road. Uh, and, and the right road is the road that is fully committed to following Jesus, whatever the cost. Uh, the descriptors of... So as we go through this series, don't think in terms of oughts and shoulds and gotta-dos. Rather, uh, just... Think in terms of following Jesus um, and and seeing these things being manifested in in your life in in the process of doing that. And if we display the Beatitudes, the qualities of the Beatitudes, Jesus says we will be salt and we will be light. And So I want to here look at what that means. What does that mean to say that we are salt and that we are light? We'll start with salt. Um, In the ancient world, salt was used to preserve food and to season food. It was Uh, used to preserve food, because they didn't have refrigerators back then, as you know. And so they would put salt on on meat and fish, and it would keep it from decomposing. um, At least would slow that down. And so it was used to preserve food and to make it taste good. And so Jesus, when he calls us salt, he's saying that we're going to be a force of preservation in the world, and we're going to be a source of flavoring in the world. But what are we supposed to preserve, and how are we supposed to flavor? I have heard a lot of people actually say that the way that Christians are to be salt in the world is that we're supposed to preserve the moral values of society. We are to be the ones who are the guardians and defenders of morality in society. society. We're to be the ones who fight to keep traditional values. just got a a thing in the mail this last week. I sent out to all these pastors that that use salt, and I've seen this done frequently, salt becomes a metaphor uh, to rally Christians around a particular cause, to outlaw a particular sin. It's never our sins, of course. Uh, It's it's someone else's sin. And uh, we want to rally the troops around that because we are the salt and we will preserve morality. Well... Well... See... We're supposed to always follow Jesus' example, right? I mean, he is the bullseye. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So you've got to ask the question, what, what, when do you ever see Jesus doing that? And the answer is never. In fact, you find several times in the Gospels, it says that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, were the, the scum of the earth in, in the eyes of uh, Jewish Orthodox people in the first century, the tax collectors and the prostitutes hung out with Jesus, and he, he uh, fellowshiped with them, and he partied with them. And I have trouble believing that that would have happened if Jesus was out there publicly trying to pass laws against them. You see? Uh, I seriously doubt. In fact, the prostitutes and the tax collectors avoided the Pharisees like the plague for that very reason. They do not want to be judged. But there's something about Jesus. He was salt in the kind of way that attracted those kind of people. Uh, in fact, Paul says... In 1 Corinthians 5, what business is it of mine, as, as a kingdom person, to judge those outside the church? That's not our, our concern. Our focus is to be exclusively on what God calls us to do, not trying to tell force the world to act in ways that we think they should act. Our job is to advance the kingdom of God, not to try to run the kingdom of the world. And, and if, if you think it's your job as a, as a follower of Jesus to uh, fight for your opinions about how people should behave, you're going to end up manifesting the exact opposite qualities of the Beatitudes. Uh, instead of being humble, well, you're presupposing that you're morally superior. And instead of being meek, you're going to come across as arrogant. Instead of being the persecuted, well, you're going to be the persecutor. <laughs> you're the one trying to enforce your superior will on others. It's the exact opposite of the Beatitudes. And so, folks, as I said last week, our job as kingdom people is never to pretend like we're morally superior to anybody. In fact, our job as kingdom people is to have the mindset of the Apostle Paul when he said, here is a saying that is worthy of everybody to say, uh, that is that we are the worst of sinners. The exact opposite of this morally superior guardian defender fight, fighter of traditional values. Uh, we're, we're to confess we are the worst of sinners in obedience to jesus we are to say whatever we see in someone else's eye is a mere dust particle compared to the two by four that comes out of our own eye our job is we've got to be manifesting a mindset and an attitude that conveys the humblest people on the planet rather than the pharisaical moral guardians of of truth and righteousness our job is to never judge others as jesus said our job the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 is to never hold anyone's sin against them because we're ambassadors of the kingdom and ministers of reconciliation. So our job is to repeat the attitude of Jesus on the cross, and which is to pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, so whatever Jesus means by calling us salt, it's not that, all right? Can we agree? It's, it's not that. So to find out what Jesus does mean, Here's an idea that I have. Uh, I have a PhD in theology, um, and so you would expect me to know this kind of thing. How about we look at the Bible? Just one minute. Look at the Bible. See what the Bible says about that. Whenever you're answering a question about a metaphor or whatever, it's always good to say, does the Bible, might there be a clue in the Bible? So, does the Bible have anything to say about salt that might shed light on this? And it turns out, it does. If you look at Leviticus 2, uh, it says, Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant, the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. For a number of reasons uh, that we don't need to get into right now, uh, God had the Israelites use salt as a sign of the covenant. And so when they would consecrate something to God, they put salt on it. Now, it's bizarre when you think about it. You know, oh, Lord, this is yours. You know, Does God like the flavor of salt? or What's going on here? Um, it's odd to us, but that is just the way it was. They used salt as a sign of the covenant to consecrate something to God. And so when Jesus says that we're salt, given how steeped he is in the Bible and how steeped his audience is in the Bible, uh, we ought to hear him saying, you are the sign of the covenant to the world. So the thing that we're to preserve is the covenant here in the world. Our presence is to be a consecrating influence in the world with the salt of the world. We preserve the covenant for the world, and then we flavor the folks of the world. Uh, We we add seasoning to their life through acts of of self-sacrificial love. Uh, We're the salt that preserves and the salt that flavors. A sign of the covenant. See, God forged a, a new covenant with the world when he became a human being and died on the cross as Jesus Christ. And so the cross is God saying, I covenant to love you like this. I covenant to reconcile you to myself. I covenant to free you from Satan's oppression. I covenant to transform you into my likeness. And the cross is God saying, will you accept this invitation? And the job of all of us who say yes to that is to uh, live a kind of life that puts that covenant on display and that invites people into it. We're the salt of the earth, which means that we're to be an ongoing reminder to people uh, of of the covenant that God has made with them. We're to be an ongoing reminder to people of of who God is and what God's up to in this world. A a constant reminder, our presence, consecrates them because uh, we're a signpost about how God loves them and how God has done everything possible to redeem them and how God wants to invite them in on, on a transforming relationship. He wants to invite them in on the blessed revolution. And the way that we do that, the way that we're salt... It's simply by manifesting what it looks like to be in a covenant relationship with God. We are salt by the way that we model what it looks like to be a person who's loved uh, with an everlasting love. What does that look like when a human being really gets that on the inside? And we're, we consecrate the world by, by manifesting that. Uh, we're salt. Because we manifest what it looks like to be transformed by his love. We manifest what it looks like for a human being to get all your life and worth and significance from what God thinks about you. And so we manifest to the world what does it look like to be freed from that exhausting need to always be chasing after stuff and trying to acquire stuff and clinging to stuff. And we model what it is to be in covenant relationship with God. We're salt by the way that we do to others what God has done to us. And so we we, we love others the way God has loved us. And we're sold by the way that we share our, our resources, our wealth with others, the way God shares his wealth with us. And we're sold by the way that we uh, uh, forgive others the way God has forgiven us. And we're sold by the way that we don't judge others because God doesn't judge us. We're sold by the way that we don't hold people's sin against them because God doesn't hold our sin against us. We're sold by the way that we love our enemies because God loved us even while we were enemies. That's what it means to be salt. And see, if we do that, If we're salt in that way, we will manifest the Beatitudes. That that will characterize our life. Because the Beatitudes are simply the qualities of a person who's consistently living out the love of God. The Beatitudes are what it looks like for a person to live out the covenant that God's made with the world um, and to do it in a context where the world is still fallen. That's why there's a persecution involved. And if we do that, we will be salt. We'll be a force of preservation by being an ongoing reminder of God's love for others and an ongoing invitation to others to join the kingdom. And we'll be seasoning people's lives, flavoring people's lives by loving them the way Christ loved us, sprinkling into their life acts of self-sacrificial love. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. Now, here's a crucial point. Uh, Think about this. For salt to preserve and to season food... It has to be distinct from that food, but also has to remain in contact with that food. If the salt just blends in with the food, it can't be a source of preservation or of seasoning. And yet if the salt is kept totally apart from the food, it can't be a source of preservation or of seasoning. In the same way, if we're to serve as a sign of God's covenant to the world, We've got to remain, on the one hand, distinct from the world, while also remaining in contact with the world. John says this way, he says, be in the world, but not of the world. That's how we're salt. We always have to stay in the world. That means we always have to be mixing it up with non-Christians. We can't be a reminder of God's covenantal love, and we can't be a seasoning influence in people's lives if we're secluded in our little church or our little Christian club. Our cozy little group. We've got to get out there and mix it up the way Jesus did with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. But at the same time, we can never blend in with the world. We can't be a reminder of God's covenantal love and a, and a seasoning influence in people's lives if we're no different from them, if we've got nothing to offer them. That's why Jesus says in this teaching if the salt loses its saltiness, then what good is it? It's not good for anything. It'll be thrown on the ground and, and trampled on like, like dirt. The purpose of salt, he's saying, is to be salty. If salt doesn't do that, well then, it's not doing what salt's supposed to do. And in the same way, if our lives don't contrast with the world and display the unique self-sacrificial love that characterizes God's character and characterizes the kingdom, well then we've got nothing to offer the world. Nothing to offer. Jesus makes the same point about light. He says that... Uh, you're the light of the world. Now, light does two things. On the one hand, it contrasts with the darkness, and therefore allows people to see what's in the room. Allows people to see what's 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 real. It's not hidden any longer in the darkness. And light in the ancient world, um, well, today as well, I guess, uh, can function as a uh, as a uh, kind of a beacon in the dark of night. Light can show you the way to go. That's why Jesus says talks about a city set on a hill. Uh, in the ancient world, a traveler at night, which was always a dangerous thing to do. But if you're in the dark of night and you could see in the distance a light, that's because there's a city on a hill and you could see people's lights on They didn't have electricity, of course, but they had candles. And uh, that would show a person that that's the way to safety. Right? That, that, that's the direction to go. Uh, so also we are the light of the world. In this dark world, this oppressed world, we are to be light. And uh, what, what Jesus is getting at is that if we follow him and display the qualities of the Beatitudes, we're going to contrast with the darkness of the world. And that will allow people to see the truth about God and the truth about uh, what he's up to in this world. And will, as we manifest the Beatitudes, as we follow Jesus, will be a light that shows people the way to go to safety, the way to go to salvation. The reality is that all around us every day, there are people who are in darkness. They don't know that, but they are in darkness. People who don't have a clue what's going on. They don't have a clue who the real God is. They don't have a clue as to what they're worth, how God values them. They don't have a clue of the danger that they may be in uh, as if they're resisting uh, the love of God in their life. They don't have a clue what this whole thing's all about, where it's heading. That's why most people waste their life just trying to chase after stuff to make their life a little bit more comfortable and convenient. And see, our job as kingdom people, people who are committed to God's covenant, is to live in a way that contrasts with that way of living and that demonstrates the truth about the real God and the truth about His real kingdom and the truth about a real Savior and the the, the truth about this revolution that's going on. And the beauty of that draws people into the kingdom, and that's how the kingdom expands. We're salt and we are light. But just like the salt, if it's no longer salty, it's worthless, so also, the light, if, it's, if it doesn't shine, it's worthless. The purpose of salt is to be salty, and the purpose of light is to shine. So if there's a city on the hill that doesn't provide light to the traveler, what good is it? It just blends, it just blends in with the darkness. And if you have a, a, a light in your house, put it on, on a stand, if you, if, if you put a bowl on it, actually the bowl is how they would put these, these lights out. If you put a bowl on it, the light is extinguished, so what good is it? It doesn't show people anything, it just blends in with the darkness purpose of light is to shine. and The purpose of salt is to be salty. And the purpose of being a disciple of Jesus is to be salt and light. The purpose of being a disciple of Jesus is to serve the world by manifesting the covenant that God made with the world in Jesus Christ. The purpose for being a disciple is to flavor people's lives with the love of God through loving acts of service. The purpose of being a disciple is to push back the darkness, to contrast with the darkness, and to push back the darkness so people can begin to see what's real, what's going on, who their creator is, what their purpose in life is. The purpose of being a disciple is to point lost people in the direction of safety, to point people in the direction of truth, uh, where they can finally find out who they really are and find out their, their true identity and find out their true destiny. And find out the true source of life. And find out what it is they've always been hungering for. You see, when we surrender our life to Christ, it's not just for our benefit. A lot of people think that. Oh, now I'm saved and that's the end of the story. No, when we surrender our life to Christ, we certainly are benefited by that. But it's not just for us. The purpose is to now serve the world. The purpose is to be used by God to further his kingdom. The purpose is to now spread that love to others. When we surrender our life to Christ and sign up on this blessed revolution, we're signing up for a vocation. We have a job description. It's not just for us. And that vocation is to be a sign of the covenant. And uh, therefore, to uh, be demonstrating the truth of what's going on here to people around us by how we live and by what we say. This This is how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That you may. There's a purpose for this. When we surrender to Christ, we become his chosen people. But that's not just for our sake. We're special possession. That's wonderful. But that's not just for our sake. Uh, We are a royal priesthood. Priests are the ones who mediate God's presence and God's truth to others. They serve the world by by declaring, as the text says, declaring God's praises, publicly declaring, publicly manifesting with our words and with our life, manifesting uh, the beauty of the one who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that they too may be brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we enter the kingdom, we sign up for a vocation and we have a job and it's to demonstrate the beauty of God's unique character to everyone we come in contact with, to demonstrate the beauty of God's uh, unique love, and, and the beauty of his kingdom, the beauty of his covenant uh, to all that we come in contact, contact with. And in doing that, we invite others into the kingdom and we draw them. The beauty draws them into the kingdom and that's how the mustard seed kingdom expands. This is what the nation of Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to be a, a nation of priests who mediated the truth to the nations around them. But what happened was they forgot their calling. They, they, oh, they thought, well, we're chosen people, and isn't that wonderful? And so they had a little bless me club. And they didn't reach out and serve. In fact, they got arrogant and looked down on those they were supposed to serve. The same thing happens with the church. It turns into a, a little bless me club. Oh, we're the saved people. We're the holy people. And see, if you're not serving others, what happens is you end up judging others. And so we're a city on a hill, but we, it's Instead of being lights that that provide safety to people and direction of people, we look down at our noses at those sinners out there and think that we're morally superior. No, we've got to remember our calling. We've got a job to do. Uh, We are called and empowered to uh, have lifestyles that contrast with the world. And yet lifestyles that are always mixing it up with the world. uh, So that we can be the royal priest that God calls us to be. The salt that God calls us to be. The light that God calls us to be. The ambassadors of the kingdom that God calls us to be. The ministers of reconciliation that God calls us to be. The body of Christ that he calls us to be. The beacons of light that he calls us to be. And that is our identity. Notice, Jesus doesn't say you carry the light uh, or you carry the salt. No, you are the light and you are the salt. It's our identity. It's a contradiction for us not to be distinct from the world and yet mixing it up with the world. That is our identity. That's who we are. It's a non-negotiable. Sign of the covenant, which forces this question. And here's where things may get a little unpleasant. Let it happen. Are we doing our job? We just got to get on it. Are we doing, do our lives individually and collectively differ significantly from the surrounding culture? And differ in a covenant way. I mean, the first church I was saved in, they wanted to be different from the world, but it was in all these weird ways, you know, like uh, all these rules, you know, about what they do or don't do, and girls not being able to wear pants, and. I mean, all these rules you know the holiness rules and and that's that's being different in a pharisaical way no are we different by the way that we live by the love that is displayed in the choices we make about our resources in the choices we make about our money and the choices we make about our time are, are, are we manifesting the love of the kingdom by how we live and yet are, are we mixing it up with the world demonstrating self-sacrificial love to people by hanging out with them are we finding opportunities to invite others into the kingdom and uh, and to display the love of God uh, in their midst. Are we being salt and are we being light to our family and to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to the folks that we work out with at the gym if we go there and to the uh, the, the moms that we meet at the soccer matches when we go to our kids' soccer matches or football games or whatever it is. Are we being salt and light to the people that that uh, we we are with in this world? And here's something. It gets even deeper than this. This is the thing that really got me. I mean, that was easy. Listen to this now. <laughs> See, the crowd, the crowd followed Jesus because I mean, some some were just curious. Some had uh, infirmity that they wanted healed. Uh, some just wanted a uh, teaching that maybe would help their life. But the crowd follows Jesus because it's going to benefit them in some way. And. That's just what it is. I mean, that, that the fallen mind naturally thinks that way. The fallen natural mind looks at the entire world as potential to meet my needs, to benefit my life. Everything, including people, are there to meet my needs. That's in the fall. We're just self-centered that way. Uh, we turn in ourselves, and so we evaluate everything, whether it's our partner or whether it's the church or whether it's going to Burger King or McDonald's. What will best meet my needs? What do I want? And so the crowd, of course, follows Jesus for that reason. The disciples are distinct from that for this reason. They don't ask, how can I use Jesus to my benefit? A disciple begins to be a disciple when you put that question on the the back shelf and now you ask, how can I be used by Jesus for his benefit? That's the decisive turning point between a crowd follower of Jesus and a disciple follower of Jesus. See, the crowds are always fickle because you are when you're... Uh, self-centered when you're looking to get your own needs met you're, you're fickle so they cheer for Jesus and they're fans of Jesus as long as Jesus is meeting their needs and as long as Jesus is entertaining them and as long as Jesus is is giving them something interesting and as long as Jesus is sort of conforming to what they expect the Messiah to be whoa yay Jesus but as soon as his teachings get kind of tough like you find in John 6 for example the crowd goes away And then when Jesus, when it's really clear that he's not going to be anything like what they thought a Messiah should be, when it's very clear that he's not going to serve them by meeting their political agendas and conforming to their nationalistic ideas, when when Jesus refuses to be co opted by their politics and by their patriotism and all that, well, now, now they holler, crucify him. Kill the bum! What good is he? Disciples were... The crowd was fickle. The disciples... See, the disciples were kind of fickle too. I mean, they failed Jesus. We all do. We all do. But their heart was different. They had a heart that wanted to be used by Jesus and not just use Jesus for their own benefit. They had a heart that wanted to belong to this, the, the Blessed Revolution. They, they were fickle. They were dumb. They were cowards. But their heart was uh, to advance the kingdom and to be used by... by they, they had submitted themselves to him. And that's why when Jesus rose, they could be restored. God could, as long as a person has a kingdom heart, God can, can work with them and, 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 and cause them to grow. As long as they had that heart. Jesus loved the crowds. He had compassion on the crowds. He challenged the crowds, but he never judged them. That's, they are just where they are. He had compassion on them. But his goal was always to make disciples. Because the kingdom isn't about crowds kingdom is about disciples. In fact, his last commission, his last words before he left was, go into all nations and make disciples, commanding them to obey all that I have done. His last words. And that is the job that we carry on as we carry on this, this, this uh, blessed revolution. Attracting a crowd each week has no more significance now than it did in Jesus' day. Jesus didn't say, go out and make big crowds. Now go out and make disciples. Crowds have no more significance today than they did back then. So the only thing a church should focus on is are we making disciples, not are we attracting a crowd? The question that we, the body of Christ, have to ask is are we raising up people who don't use Jesus for their benefit but who want to be used by Jesus for His benefit to advance the kingdom? Are we raising up people who, who display the qualities of the Beatitudes in their life and who therefore contrast with the surrounding culture? And yet are we raising up people who have the love of Jesus in their life, so they love the people in the world and they want to mix it up with the people in the world to shine and to salt their lives. The question that every church has to honestly ask itself is, are we a crowd-attracting church or are we a disciple-making church? And there's nothing wrong with attracting a crowd. It is what it is. Fine. As long as you're making disciples out of that crowd. But the problem is, is that we, in this in this consumeristic, success-driven Wow, enamored culture that we live in, the crowd often becomes a sign of success in and of itself. And so people say, Wow, look, God must be moving. There's such a big crowd. Look how fast that church is going. God must be moving. But see, if we're thinking like kingdom people, we should never be impressed with a crowd. A crowd is a sign of nothing. A carnival can attract a crowd, it doesn't mean that god's in it. <laughs> you see? So instead of saying, "Wow, look, God's moving," there's a crowd. We ought to be people who say, "Wow, look, God's moving." There's three people who who look who don't look like the crowd. Who look different from the crowd. Wow, there's a group of people who display the Beatitudes. Wow, this, they're, they're, God's moving. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of people who look like Jesus and they serve like Jesus and they love like Jesus and they, 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 they forgive like Jesus. Wow, look, God's moving. There's some people who are really swimming upstream in the culture and, and they contrast with the culture and yet they mix it up with the culture so they're light and they're salt. Wow, God is moving. It could be three people. Uh, one person. God, that's, that is success in the kingdom. You get one person like that and, and that means a trillion times more than having a million people who are part of the crowd. You see, it's, a, it's not about the crowd, it's about making disciples. And so you, you, you ought to know that you need to know that our ambition at wilderness Church, and we're clear about this, and I think we have been in the past, but our one aspiration is to make disciples. It's make disciples. And I will be honest, I don't think we've done, been particularly good at that. Um, we, like the earliest disciples, have failed in, in, in a number of ways, but God knows our heart, and um, I don't know many churches in America that are good at making disciples. It's it's a it's a hard thing. I think we're making progress. I, the Discover the Kingdom class, I think, is is having a marvelous impact on people's lives. And then we've got this ministry uh, called Soul where people are learning how to live in community and uh, intentional community, missional community, kingdom community, and uh, there's some learning how to be salt and light, and there's some beautiful things happening there. But I say that to say that this is why we're not a church that tries to outsell the competition in meeting people's needs. Not that we want to ignore that, but but we're not trying to compete with that because we don't want to build a crowd by helping people just learn how to use Jesus better. We want to be a church that confronts people and that confronts ourselves. It's got to be confrontational, like this message is. Uh, And the challenge before us is always to ask... How can Jesus use me, use us, to further his kingdom? If the crowds come, wonderful, that's wonderful. But if the crowds leave, that's no issue for us. That's, that's no concern of ours. And so I challenge us right now, challenge myself right now, to ask that question uh, and listen to the Spirit. How can we learn to be used by Jesus? And how can we... Uh, what needs to be changed in our life to uh, be the salt that we're called to be? We need to ask the question, are we here now to find out ways that Jesus can benefit us? Or are we here to find out how we can allow Jesus allow our lives to be a benefit to Jesus and the kingdom? Uh, I have a sense of urgency about this for this reason. See, in American Christianity, we're... Success has usually been measured by the crowds, not discipleship making. Because of that, most people, I don't think, are really aware of the distinction between the crowd follower and the discipleship follower. But it's an all-important distinction, because Jesus came to make disciples, not to attract crowds. And so we need to ask ourselves this question, are we one of those who would leave the crowd to go and hear this teaching, the Beatitudes, and to seriously... Seek to live a life that manifests those qualities. Are we one of the crowd followers of Jesus who want to use Jesus to benefit ourselves? Or are we a disciple follower of Jesus who wants to be used by Jesus to further his kingdom? Are we willing to commit to pursuing a life in fellowship with others that will significantly contrast with the surrounding culture? And yet, are we willing to commit to pursuing a life in fellowship with others that intentionally makes room to hang out with people in the culture? And mix it up with people in the world. To rub shoulders with them so that we can be salt and so that we can be light to the world around us. And if you say yes to that, then the question I end with, and then we'll turn to the questions that you had about this message. Um, if we say yes, then the question we need to ask is, is this. Or the challenge is this. Uh, will we, in relationship with others, if possible, um, seek God, to seek, seek His wisdom on how we can arrange our life differently? So that we have more time available, um, more, more time available to fellowship with people in the body of Christ, because it's about a city set on, on a hill, not an individual. There's, there's got to be room in our life to be part of the body. Uh, and what do we need to arrange, uh, rearrange in our life so that we have time to fellowship with people outside the church, inside the church and outside the church? It takes time. And uh, how do we rearrange our life to free up our resources so that we, have, uh, we spend less money on ourselves and our loved ones and have more to share? Uh, to manifest God's love and and generosity towards uh, the poor and to advance the kingdom. What needs to change in our life? And we need to see God's wisdom on that and talk about it with those that we share life with. Uh, It doesn't happen without intentionality. And it doesn't happen without sacrifice. It doesn't happen without a little bit of pain. But see, everything in the kingdom is about bleeding, right? We are the kingdom to the degree that we bleed. Which is to say, to the degree that we replicate the sacrifice of the cross. Uh, and that's a question that kingdom people have to always live in. It never stops. Because uh, where you were at last year, maybe God wants you to be in a different place this year. That's fine, as long as you're moving in the kingdom direction. All right, uh, what do we have by way of questions here? Uh, when are we being the salt and light? Uh, when we are being salt and light, do we always have to talk about God when mixing it up with non-Christians? No. No, uh, you don't always have to talk. Um, in fact, actions always speak louder than words. Um, the problem is that for, for what's happened far too often is that, that people use only words and they don't have any reality in their life to uh, give those words credibility. They haven't taken the time to earn credibility in people's lives. I mean... We, We've got to spend time just loving people and being befriending people, and it's really important that we understand that we love people as an end in and of itself. We, we're not loving people to try to sell them something. Uh, if if if, and if people can sniff at a mile away, people want to be loved for their own sake. So we love people for their own sake. We're just being who we are, and we love them. And out of that, we're demonstrating the kingdom. And out of that, will come naturally. Uh, a time to share as you share stuff in your life and what's pa- what you're passionate about, and then you talk about the kingdom naturally. Uh, it comes out. Like, it's, it should never be something that's forced. This is why I'm not a big fan. I'm not going to have a rule against it, but street evangelism. You know, God uses all means, so praise God for it. But uh, that's not our bullseye. Where you just are handing out tracts or, or sharing words, uh, much more effective, much more kingdom-like is is, but it also takes a lot more time is uh, is living life with folks and just loving them and serving them. And, and ideally, the, the way that you love folks should raise the question, why are you like that? Why, 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 what, what leads you to live like that? And now you have an opportunity to talk about your king and the kingdom. And uh, uh, be, you're being salt and you're being light. yeah Good. I'm glad you asked that question. It is possible to go to the other extreme, I'll say, the other extreme and and some folks like don't use words at all. They, they they think it's wrong to ever talk about the kingdom, and that's also no. You want to talk about the kingdom? Uh, just uh, let your actions speak uh, louder than your words. Uh, are you saying it is wrong for individual believers to engage in social action, which requires legislative backing to enforce the law, i.e., sex trafficking or violence against women? Excellent question. Uh, no, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that at all, especially when you're dealing with something as clear-cut as sex trafficking and violence against women. Uh, not by any means. It's it's, uh, it's, it's t- t- totally appropriate. Um, when you're dealing with things that are more, more ambiguous, like what's the right way to uh, run the government and... Uh, to take care of uh, poverty and to uh, increase the economy. Is it the Democrat way or Republican way? When there's things about which m- moral and intelligent people disagree, now you've got to be very careful about not getting sucked into the divisiveness of it. When you're dealing with things that are much more concrete and, and unambiguous like this, it's uh, um, uh, a different story. But whether you're dealing with something that's unambiguous or something that is ambiguous, the most important thing is this. Uh, to not... We're kingdom to the degree that our social action involves our very lives okay What often happens is that uh, we people think that how they vote uh, that that's the best way the kingdom way of, of weighing in on, on an issue. Um, and so the vote becomes sort of a surrogate for action. Oh I did my job, I voted. no. The kingdom is, is, as I said last week, I I think it was last week, the way we vote in the kingdom is how we live our lives every day, how we spend every dollar, how we spend every minute. Uh, We vote by by the the way that we serve in in our life. And so um, it's what we do, it's how we live that sets us apart as distinct kingdom people. But when there there are times where uh, here we're in a culture where the government asks our opinion about things, well, feel free to give that opinion. And sometimes it's unambiguous. But always beware that uh, there are a lot of issues about which Christians can disagree on, and so don't let that divide us. Matthew and Simon had opposite opinions on political issues, and yet there's not a word spoken about it in the Gospels. Because when they have Jesus in common, there are different opinions about what Caesar should do are rendered inconsequential. Great question. Uh, i got time for another one, I think. Yes. i got a new clock here. I love it. I can actually see it. (laughs) Uh, When Jesus... It's because I've been a bad boy lately. <laughs> I've been going over a little bit. So they bought me a new clock. Or they, uh... When Jesus said, you are the salt and light, didn't he mean plural? Are we supposed to be a community of salt and light or individuals of salt and light? And what's the difference? Excellent. Thank you for asking that. No, it is plural. Uh, in fact, most of the you's, almost all the you's, I almost want to say all of the you's, in the epistles, when it says "you are kingdom," you are to be this. You are to blah blah blah. The "you"s are the plural. Now, unfortunately, we can't capture the plural in the English. Uh, we say "you" whether it's an individual or a group. But in, in Greek, uh, they, they distinguish between it, and it's usually in the plural. And it's an important point. The kingdom is always about community, always about relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be salt and light individually. I, in fact, you have to be salt and light individually if you're going to be it as a community. And so we have to individually make decisions about how we live and uh, what we buy and where our time goes and where our energy goes. Uh, and that's the way we are individually salt and individually light. But uh, we are to be ultimately a city set on a hill. And the primary unit of the kingdom is not an event. God uses this event and it's fine. It's wonderful. Uh, but the primary unit of the Christian faith, we've always said, are, are small communities uh, in, in, the, in, in the New Testament times, uh, when, when they talked church, they meant groups that met in houses. Like in the book of Acts, they met in each other's house uh, daily. In fact, they didn't have special buildings to meet until the 4th century. And so we're always encouraging folks. That's what our, our, uh, that track I talked about earlier, uh, the Discover the Kingdom track and Explore the Kingdom, and then uh, what we're calling sojourners. It's about people getting in communities that are intentional and missional so that they can, that they can together be salt and together be light. We're to be a city set on a hill that shines bright. Uh, not just the individual set on a hill. So it's, it's a yes to both, individual and uh, collectively. All right, great questions. I, I really appreciate uh, all of that. If you, um, I, I'd like to encourage you to think about uh, joining those table discussions on Tuesday night. It's one way to start to meet people and develop relationships. Uh, it's also a way to go deeper uh, with this uh, message. It's, uh, it's a first step to take in terms of getting uh, separate from the crowd and starting to be the disciple that follows Jesus up the side of the mountain, Amen. If we're not supposed to mix the kingdom and politics to remain salty, does that mean we shouldn't vote? <laughs> I always get this question. Um, you know, it, it's here's how I, I honestly I here's how I honestly would answer that. That the, the kingdom of this world and politics is too uh, too trivial for me to ever tell somebody not to do it. I'd be giving it too much credibility if I said, don't vote. But besides, it's not my place to say don't vote. There's not. No, you know, we, we live in a culture where uh, Caesar asks your opinion, and there's nothing wrong with giving it. Um, and so you know, Paul, he, he was a Roman citizen, and he was getting beaten up one time, and so he voiced his opinion. Hey, you guys, I got rights. You can't beat me up like this. Now, his ultimate motive wasn't to protect his rights, Though I'm sure he didn't enjoy getting beaten, but he was mainly concerned that he'd still be able to preach the gospel. But there's nothing wrong with talking to the government if they, you know, want to talk to you. Fine. But what's very, very, very important is that you know what you're doing when when you do that, um, and that you. The main thing is that um, all of our eggs are to be put into the basket of the kingdom. Uh, our whole trust in Jesus Christ. He's our one president. He's our one Lord. And um, all of our confidence is to be there, which means none of it is to be on the kingdoms of this world and, um, um, or on any particular party or any particular policy. Um, and the thing about voting is it can suck you in. This is why I don't do it. But I, I'm not, this isn't a rule, but this is me. Uh, I, I'm like, I think, an alcoholic who can't, if I take a drink, I'm going to just get drunk. Uh, I, I know me too well. If I, at least at this stage of my life, if I do that, I'll start to get sucked in. And I may keep on saying, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, but I'm finding myself getting aggravated that everyone doesn't agree with me, you know, and, and, and that how come people you know, are stupid? They don't agree with me. You know, and that, that, that's what this does. I submit to you, if you're one of those who, have, who just gets so irritated at those dumb Republicans or those dumb Democrats or those whoever, then you, you, you've got too much invested. Uh, you might consider um, going on the wagon for a while and turning off CNN, and I'm serious, I'm dead serious, because this stuff can suck you in, it really does, it sucks you in, and yet, as you saw, so much hangs on keeping the kingdom separate, everything, the contrast is everything, the contrast is everything, this is why I get so greed bent out of shape when, when people mix it all together, uh, it, it, uh, it just damages things on every front, so if you, if you feel okay with voting, uh, then then by all means, or participating in some other way, there's no rules about this, um, but there are principles, and the principle is guard your heart and ha- make sure all your allegiance is in, in Christ and all your hope is in Christ, all your confidence in Christ. Good, thanks for asking that. Uh, another question. You said a disciple is one who is disciplined by another, but I don't have a disciple's. I don't, ha- I don't have a disciple's. Who, what should I use to be discipled? Is it prayer, Bible, others, God? Uh, yeah, I think you meant I, I don't have anyone to mentor me or to, to be discipled with. Um, very good question here. It is uh, a... This is one of the major areas where we have just fallen short, and it's not because of lack of effort. Um, We are putting things in place now to hopefully be able to have in a year or two uh, mentors for people to be discipled by. because uh, the majority of people need somebody concretely to walk with them uh, in, in the process of discipleship. Um, right now, we have this, uh, this class, uh, Discover the Kingdom, and then this uh, community afterwards. But even that, we're not, we're not pushing really hard to get a lot of people into it because we, we don't want to have more people than we have leaders. And so we're, we're looking at a, a slow build uh, over the long haul here rather than a quick growth program kind of a thing. So in the meantime I would say um it's really good if you can find and, and ask ask God to guide you here at the church uh, to be looking for people who maybe are farther along the road than you and and you you just do life together a person you know, we can disciple one another um uh while we're all on the way in fact we are all on the way um but um there there's a power just in having relationships with others Um, And holding one another accountable and helping one another. It it brings out more out of each of us. Um, It would be ideal. You know, Paul often said to to the uh, folks that he wrote to in his letters, he says, Follow me even as I follow Christ. He put his life up as an example. Uh, Follow me even as I follow Christ. And it's really good to have concrete visual examples. You know, and and, um, I'm undoubtedly a perfect example, but you don't know me very well. So how could I, you know, really rub off on you too much? Um, Yeah, so. uh, in the meantime, look for folks to be in relationship with. Look for opportunities to take classes. Definitely reading the Bible on your own is good. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and and be engaged in the spiritual disciplines on your own. The Holy Spirit is the discipleship maker. But uh, everything in the kingdom works better uh, out of relationships. Hopefully in, in a, a year or two, we'll be able to, uh, right away, when people come to Christ, be able to say, here's somebody who can help mentor you. And, uh, uh, take you further in the, in the kingdom life. Excellent question. Uh, any others? Why would God put me on display when I'm still working on my sin? <laughs> Seems like a bad idea. <laughs> I love it. Uh, God, you might want to check out somebody else here. Well, because part of what we put on display is um, the, the the mercy, the love, and the grace of God. Um. The last thing God needs are people who are perfect, um, which is to say, people who think they're perfect because they're actually not. Um, it, the world seen too much of that, and and the the, the very idea that that um, we're that, that we to be, uh, you know, kind of a, this superior, like I, look at me. I, I, it's not like that. Like we're like I, you, know, you should be like me. Um, it, it's not about our personal, uh, you know sin quota, as it were, as much as it is just about our, our be, despite the fact that we're fallen, despite the fact that we got struggles and we're imperfect, despite the fact that we fall and screw up and everything, what the world needs to see is people who, in that imperfect state, um, nevertheless have a passion for this king, and, and, and that passion for the king leads them to do bizarre things, uh, You know, like, like, like not care very much about how much possessions they have, and to be kind of you know, reckless and generous with the way they give away things and, and to have time for one another. And even though they're kind of screwed up in all you know, these ways, that they have a passion. They seem full of life. And um, they know that they're loved. And they spread that love. And that's what the world needs needs to see. That's why I, I really think that the, the way that the Western church has usually defined sin is just... I mean, the, the biggies have been you know, okay, sex and, and, and smoking and drinking and... Uh, dancing and th- those kind of individual things, and I am not saying uh, commenting on the rightness or wrongness of those. I mean, obviously, uh, sex outside of marriage is wrong, and and getting drunk is wrong. So I'm not condoning that. But when when that becomes the bullseye, then what happens is people can check those things off. They 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 are the ones who are going to now become the moral guardians of, of society and try to impose their you know moral law on on, on others, not even realizing that. The biggies that the Bible talks about are still ones that they're guilty of. Um, the, the idolatry and the gluttony and, and, and all the rest. Uh, that's just the wrong way of going about it. The, the right way of going about it is this. It, the, the, the most important thing is where is your passion? Where's your heart? Are, are you, is, is Jesus being the uh, focus of your life? Has he captured your heart? Are you being sold out there? And that leads you in a different trajectory, a different way. Now you're participating in the kingdom. And you may, in fact, still struggle with a lot of those other things. Those are going to be taken care of. As you're walking down this road, those things are going to be taken care of. But they're not taken care of because you're trying so hard to take care of them so that you can be a good billboard for Jesus because you don't smoke. No, they're taken care of because you're not trying to be a perfect billboard. You're just in love with Jesus. You see, and as you're in love with Jesus, then the other things start to fall off. Um, What often happens is that instead of being in love with Jesus, uh, we are in love with religion. And uh, we're in love with how good we are at religion. And now you become the perfect billboard. And uh, rather than inviting the world to uh, come into the kingdom, um, you're a big turnoff. (laughs) Uh, And make people want to not ever be part of the kingdom. If that's what the kingdom looks like, forget about it. Uh, You can count me out. No, so, so look at, uh, you, you are, uh, you're still in process, and you probably will be till the day you die. We all are. And the day that we forget that, um, we ought to be worried. I mean, the minute you think you're no longer in process, uh, ask somebody to pray for you because you've just gone blind. <laughs> you've, you've, been, you've, you've, you've lost your capacity to introspect. Um, no, we're in process. But it doesn't matter. It, where, where you are in terms of your relative growth, doesn't matter. What the world needs to see is, is your heart for Jesus and your love for Jesus, the fullness of life that comes from Jesus. And that's how you're a sign of the covenant. And then people say, gosh, if a person who is that messed up, um, you, you know, can know that they're loved by God and feel forgiven and free and whatever, well, then I, uh, I'm interested. Which isn't to say that we should go and try to get ourselves screwed up so there can be a good testimony to people. <laughs> Yeah. They've got their role, but it's also good to say, says for people to see, man, you were screwed up, but you've come so far. That's also a testimony. So, uh, all right, you, you get what I'm saying? Oh, right. very good questions, very good questions. If we're not supposed to mix the kingdom and politics, how do we oppose abortion? Or other political hot topics? Excellent. Ha, you got a half hour or half an hour? Uh, you got... Look at... Here's a good exercise, I think, for keen people to live in. Uh, try to pretend that politics doesn't exist. I, this time of year, it's really hard. <laughs> uh, it's in your face all the time. But but what would happen if, if that wasn't the case? How would you answer that question? And see, there's no... I, I say that because there's no, like, uh, three-step plan. You know, here's the three-step plan on, on how to address abortion or how to address racism or how to address uh, any-ism. Um, the, the, there's no particular three step plan that would fit all people. But the general principle would be this um, What can you do in your life and in relationship with others that will impact that? For example, and I share this in my book, Myth of a Christian Nation. Um, you know, there's this lady named Dorothy uh, who um, had, knew of a girl who had an unwanted pregnancy, and the late girl was considering abortion. And uh, having an abortion, and uh, as it turned out, this young lady was in a Christian family, and she was too afraid to talk to her parents. Uh, thought her parents would just completely reject her, and so, uh, but she had befriended this neighbor, Dorothy, and so Dorothy took her under her wing and just, you know, in a very non-judgmental way uh, discussed this with her, um, and weighed the options. And and uh, this young lady came to the decision that it was not uh, the best decision to end this uh, pregnancy, and. The way Dorothy uh, made that feasible is by saying, "Look, it, if you want to, if if you uh, are going to uh, keep this baby, I will help. Uh, I will I will help raise this baby. I'll, uh, if your parents kick you out, and that's what they actually ended up doing, uh, I'll I'll take you under my wing." And Dorothy ended up having to take out a second mortgage uh, to do this. Uh, to help. This young lady wanted to go to veterinarian school, and that was her major issue. This is going to end her career and all that. So Dorothy said, look, at, I, I will have as much as I can. I'll, I'll sacrifice to make that feasible. So here's something that it's, it's easy to, to cast a vote once every four years. See, that's why people, they feel like they're doing something about casting a vote every four years. kind of lets us off the hook. That's why it's so tempting. But if you really want to do something about abortion, uh, then ask the question, how can I sacrifice for women who've got unwanted pregnancies and actually make it feasible for them to go full term? And that will involve uh, sacrificing after the child's born. You know, we, everyone's concerned about what happens before the birth, but how about what happens after the birth? And and, and uh, to actually show these folks that there's an, another way, uh, offer a different alternative. Um, and so, yeah, and so it is with, with, uh, with, with every issue. If you're concerned... Uh, you know, about racism will live different. How, how can we alter our lives to address the issues? Pretend like politics doesn't exist. It's, one of the reasons I'm passionate about this is that we, it's such a distraction. Uh, people get so obsessed with what we should tell Caesar to do. Something that Jesus never commanded us to do. But see, we're so obsessed with that that we don't ask, what does God want us to do? Which is the only question that we as kingdom people... Uh, are, are, are to be about. That's our only thing we're supposed to focus on. And in our culture, Caesar asks your opinion about, you know, do you have an opinion about this? And if you have one, then go, feel free to offer it. Um, but don't think that that means that you've done something about that issue. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Because whatever you vote, half the people in the country are going to think that you did more harm than good. And so maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but that's irrelevant to the kingdom. The kingdom starts where we begin to bleed. Ah, there is a quote. Somebody tweet that. The kingdom starts where we begin to bleed. That is when, when, where we begin to sacrifice. Where it begins to impact our life. Where where we have to it impacts our wallet and our uh, the resources we have available. That that's where the kingdom begins. And now what we do is to the glory of God. Let your let, let your good works shine, not in a bragging way. Look at me, look how holy I am. No, just live a, a kingdom life, and you'll be doing good works, and it will shine. But now it will lead people to glorify the Father rather than glorifying, uh, Uncle Sam. Oh, say a lot more about that, but let's try to take one more question. Got time for one more. Do we become less salty if we choose to marry someone that doesn't want to go to the same church or be active in the church? <laughs> someone goes, no. <laughs> what you meant was, I hope not because <laughs> you're probably in that situation. Uh, interesting question. Um, no, you know. Look at look at salty is about uh, the character. I mean, it's always good to ask the the question. Um, uh, you know, will a decision, whether it's who you marry or uh, what job you take or where you live or what car you buy or house, it's always good to ask the question: uh, Will this help or hinder my job to be salt and light to the world? So that's a, that's always a good question. Uh, but uh, you can be salty in any situation. This, that is, you can be a sign of the covenant. You are a sign of the covenant in every situation. You can shine and you can uh, uh, season people's lives um, and um, uh, you know, be, a, be a beacon of light. Where, wherever you are in every situation, uh, whoever you're married to, no, you, just, you, you can do that. Now, it may mean that you and your husband or you and your wife can't work together in ways that, that would be advantageous if you were going to the same church. So there are practical implications for your marriage, but as it concerns your character, uh, your, that shouldn't impede your displaying the beatitudes. Um, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't hinder your ability to display the values of the kingdom and the love of the kingdom. No, just be the salt and be the light wherever you are, whoever you're married to, whatever church you're going to, whatever your circumstances, even if you're in prison, even if you're uh, you know, being taken captive by aliens, uh, be, be salt to them. I mean, just... No, you can't be salt with them because it's be salt with the earth. So as soon as you leave the earth, not now you can't be salty. Uh, but uh, other than that, okay, that's a good note to end on. I, I'm going to close in prayer. And uh, uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and if you have any need whatsoever uh, that could use prayer, I really encourage us to take advantage of that. Even During the worship services, we, we also have a prayer team available. Take advantage of that. We want to be a church that prays for one another. All right? That's how it's supposed to go. So I'll have a father. Um, I pray right now, God, for any who are have maybe been crowd followers of you, I pray right now, this moment, you'd pull them in to be disciples. I pray, Lord God, that you would change their hearts. And use this message to do it, to turn them from people who are seeking to use Jesus to their benefit and who rather uh, are seeking to be used by Jesus for his benefit. And God, for all of us, deepen our commitment to follow you, to be passionate about you, to go down the revolutionary road of the kingdom and to put on display the Beatitudes to all we come in contact with. Help us to be salt that is salty and light that shines. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out and be light to the world.